Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. You're about to listen to episode 24 of Sprogcast, but before we begin I wanted to let you know about Sprogcast Live, which is happening on the 27th of April at Space in London. Tickets are just £10 and our fabulous panel will be Professor Dennis Walsh, Albany midwife and author of Birth in Focus Becky Reed, and writer and feminist Vanessa Olorenshaw. It's going to be a great evening, so get a ticket now from pinterandmartin.com. Now, on with the show. This is Sprogcast, episode 24. Today on the show, uh, we're going to look at the experience of pregnancy when it ends sooner, either through miscarriage or abortion. We know this is an emotive subject, so don't forget to get in touch with us if you want to comment. We have interviews with Aileen White from Birthing from Within, Kent, and Abby Fitzgibbon from the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. I'm Mark Harris, and this is Karen Hall. Hi, Mark. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm pleasantly weary uh, from happy busyness. That sounds nice. A busy, busy week for birthingforblokes.com. We we put out a, a guide to sex and intimacy for men in pregnancy. That's an ebook that's available for free download. So that we've been busy doing all that. So oh, that'll be useful. I was asked that question in an antenatal group recently about sex and pregnancy, quite openly by a, a man. And I recommended he read your book. So hope, hopefully it'll do a little bit more exploration and find that there's more in this pdf than there actually isn't in the book it kind of explores a little bit more and i'll tell you why i put it out there the three big concerns that i've had for men over 20 years and i still get them now almost weekly three top concerns top one will i hurt my partner or baby if we have sex mm. that's pretty much in the top three if not the top one second one is where is the safest place to have my baby and the third one is what on earth do i do if she is in pain and there's nothing i can do yeah um so we've published three ebooks all on those subjects and they're all a good idea that's brilliant all available through birthingforblokes.com good nice bit of (laughs) self-publicity there mark (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well done. Can't stop myself. Can't stop myself. <laughs> I had on Tuesday my antenatal breastfeeding session was filmed for training purposes. Oh! I had three cameras, two cameramen, and a sound man with a very big boom. Ooh! That was not as <laughs> fun as it sounds, I, you know. Are we doing carry on broadcast <laughs> at the moment? Oh, major. <laughs> So how did, how did that go? Were you covering specific subjects for this education? I was doing education? just my usual antenatal session. It's so that um, other training practitioners and, and other practitioners can, you know, sometimes you're, you're asked to observe a session. And if you live yeah. in the Outer Hebrides, that's quite tricky. So yeah. there's there's going to be a filmed session available on our intranet. What, so the NCT are holding you up as best practice? Yes, yes, Mark, they are. Don't sound so... <laughs> <laughs> surprised at all that's fantastic when, when will that be out it's not going to be publicly available uh, because you know, these were 
you know a, a paying group of people who uh, wanted their normal breastfeeding sessions so for them it's not publicly available ace broadcast is brought to you by our sponsor pinter and martin an independent publishing company specializing in pregnancy birth and parenting psychology nutrition and yoga and you can find them at pinterandmartin.com and we can add to that list fiction because they've got a new yeah. book um, Alice Allen's Open My Eyes That I May See Marvellous Things um, are, are just about to come out um, so possibly out by the time you listen to this um, and we're going to talk to Alice in our next episode so I'm going to save my thoughts on that book until then but I'll, I will just say I, I loved it You're excited aren't you? Yeah I am and they've yeah. also got um, just out Millie Hill's Positive Birth Book, which uh, Mark and I have both got a copy of, and it's very shiny. Oh, well, I'll tell you what, I got this through the door, and uh, I said to my fiance, because I get married uh, in May. Yeah. May, yeah. Uh, I, it feels great. I, I love the feel of it. I love the size of it. I know these things, you know, don't really matter in, in the sense that it's the content that, that matters. They matter think... because people will pick this book up off a shelf. Oh, without a doubt. And they'll, the, the other thing about this book is it isn't the book that you read all the way through, although you might. It's it's a really well-organised resource guide. I wrote a note to Millie saying I think it will become a classic mm. because it, it covers pretty much most, if not every subject you can imagine in the context of birth. It will become the reference guide to go to, I think. Yeah. I've got another book here, which is How to Grow a Baby and Push It Out by Clemmie Hooper. Right. Have you come across her? No. She's a midwife. She, she's very um, popular on Instagram. She's the one, I think I said um, in my review, she was like the, the new Mark Harris because she's all over the social media. Oh, is she the one that's negative about breastfeeding? She's not. Oh, she's lukewarm and not terribly usefully informative. But her book's like, quite different to Millie's in that it's um, everything pretty much is a one page or two page chapter and it's oh. quite colourful so it's very accessible but it's also a bit light compared okay. with Millie's book and I think really um, the Positive Birth book is, is a more useful source of information. I've been dipping in and out of Millie's book. You know, you flip it out to 100 and page 114, vitamin K, yay or nay. Yeah. It's all in there, isn't it? It's just a great, you know, flip it randomly, evidence-based birth choices. Yeah. Uh, what pain relief can I have in an MLU? It's just cram-packed yeah. with, with great stuff. And, uh, you know, 15 quid, I think it's good investment, to be I honest. I think it is too, yeah. And, and you know, I, I feel this. I feel I need to say it. Um, because you, we are sponsored by Pinter and Martin, but, you know, we have our own minds. And if we thought this book was a lump of not very good stuff, we would have told you. Uh, I like it. OK, I've got one thing that I can say um, about it that I wasn't sure about, and that is there's a huge emphasis on planning. Well, funny you should say that. Millie, Millie on social media was asking about, uh, do you talk about birth plans? And she, she, I think she had her own strong view that whether you call plan or whether you call it a, a preference list is neither here nor there. Uh, I tend to disagree with her about that. I, I, I think the way language works, the minute you are putting together your plan, 
then in the kind of society we live in, you need to manage your plan and make sure it works out exactly as you planned it. Mm. And, and and birth doesn't yield to planning. And I think I agree. I get her um, sort of philosophical reason for doing that, which is that if you've thought through each one of these elements, then you've really informed yourself about birth. Yeah. But I yeah. just I'm I'm with you on the plan idea. I, I'm I'm more on the side of a wish list. Yeah. Although I'm looking I'm looking at a great section on here making a cesarean plan. Yeah. It's a good bit, book. You know, you've got little inserts. Sophie Fletcher of Mindful Hypnobirthing's in there. She's got Rebecca Schiller in there somewhere. Yeah. Emma Pickett does the breastfeeding. Very respectable source there. Right. What have we got in the news? There's a great article in the New Statesman, uh, and I'm biased because Leslie Page is a hero of mine. You are, are you? Well, this is written by Helen Lewis um, on the 14th of March... 2017 new statesman there is so much fear at the moment meet the midwife who wants to change how we give birth and helen lewis i think if, if that is who i think she is she's not sort of part of the whole birth midwifery um industry. cartel thank you yeah. tribe um <laughs> she's somebody who if, if she is who i think she is i've met her um speaking at a skeptics meeting so you know she's quite a good person to have exploring this sort of thing very objective a skeptics meeting yeah who goes to a skeptics meeting skeptics do mark oh to discuss anything that you're skeptical about <laughs> pretty much you have, wow. they, have, they, have, they have talks I, i'm a little bit skeptical about the value of that are you <laughs> <laughs> anyway back to this article it's, it's it's a lovely feature on on professor leslie page mm. and and it, for me it highlights um a life spent supporting women and birth it's fabulous it was interesting where she's looking at um you know she is talking about what the difficulties are but she's also exploring the models for um how midwifery can be improved yeah case loading and and um team based yeah. midwifery you know based on one-to-one -one, uh, as far as possible support of a woman and her family which is so you know, well evidenced Oh, and, and and the only reason let's I, I mean there are some great quotes in this i i would like midwives to know the joy of birth not just the fear because there is so much fear around at the moment to me it's the most meaningful work you can imagine doing and i've heard leslie speak at conferences where i have you know been moved to tears by the depth of her experience uh, and how she expresses her love for the profession yeah. i mean it, it links really nicely with the article from Sarah Wickham yeah but it's not it's not written by Sarah it's written by Professor Mavis Kirkham and it's a reflection upon how birthing care within our institutions has been shaped by efficiency and a, a sort of like a business model yeah you know and, and she outlines the fact that where business model is at the fore where efficiency is at the fore things like control and standardization become the measure for what is good care not the interpersonal aspects of being with a woman in the context of a birth experience the measures inside that kind of model would be very different than inside an efficiency model it's a good article this is quite close to what margaret mccartney was saying on our previous episode isn't it about yeah. um policies being shaped by um politics and box ticking and not by research and 
you know what people really value well, well absolutely i mean mavis makes the point that you know technology inside this institution uh, saps an awful lot of money in the context for example of continuous fetal monitoring you know new monitors new advanced monitors even when the research is, is pretty clear that that widespread monitoring is not necessarily uh, useful or effective mm. you know the focus on technology saps money away from what should be our core values well, it's also, not just money that it's sapping away from the core values you know midwives are they they know this stuff yeah. But they yeah. can't actually do it because they're working in an institution where they're required yeah. to do things in certain ways. So a woman Absolutely. might say, look, actually, I don't want continuous monitoring. And a midwife might agree with them, but she's yeah. not in a position where she can act on that. Which ties into another one of Mavis's points uh, around insurance. The insurance available is at an inflated cost. And then the insurance company begins to define what constitutes good practice. Hmm. Very interesting article. A must read for students or anyone involved, you know, professional birth work. They're both on the Facebook page for people yeah. to have a look at. Yeah. Hey, hey, can you give me some insights? I, I, how to put your baby to sleep? This got some comments. Oh, didn't it? And yes, everywhere I've looked, people have been rather critical of this little film put out by um, the BBC. Um, yeah. Lullaby Trust, isn't it? Yeah, it's a Lullaby Trust film um, about how to put your baby to sleep safely um, yeah. because this week as we record is Friday of Safer Sleep Week and it, it's just a little bit... I felt like the, the video didn't um, really address the actual evidence about what's safe and it wasn't very clear. It doesn't mention feet to foot and... If you share this on social media, it comes up with a picture of a baby lying on the front, which is just really poor. What would you change then? Probably, I would certainly do something to tweak, you know, um, when you write an article and it's got several images in it, I think you can pick which one is the one that's going to show up as the thumbnail on social media. And that seriously is, is needs to be addressed because if what everyone is seeing is the caption how to put your baby to sleep safely and a picture yeah. of a baby on their front yeah good point, that completely Mom. undermines the entire message because the really clear evidence that baby sleeping on their front are at greater risk would would someone who watches this video all the way through be in a better position having watched it a little bit better but not as much better as you would want them to be okay because it doesn't mention feet to foot, which I think is, is pretty fundamental. It, um, it does mention co-sleeping as in bed sharing, um, where it says in very big letters, do not share a bed with your baby. And then in little letters, if you've been smoking or you're under the influence. So what's yeah. the clear message coming out of that? Yeah, do not share yeah. a bed with your baby. Well, and we've spoken about it before. There's been so much... Um, lack of clarity around bed sharing yeah. in, in recent days. So, so we probably need to clear that up. And, and we did a pretty good job when we did the episode, to be honest. Didn't we? I thought so. We should have made this film. Have, have a listen to that episode if you haven't. It's a, it, it's a good episode. Shall we have a listen to some of this month's interviews? Yeah, go on. We've got Aileen White talking about women's experience of miscarriage. And I might find that there's a little bit of um, technical stuff going on and the sound quality isn't as good as it might be, but it, it is audible and it's really interesting. So have a listen. 
So I'm speaking to data Aileen White. Hi, Aileen. Hi, Karen. Now, you're going to talk to us about miscarriage and support. Yeah. Um, do you represent a particular organisation? Yes, um, I started birthing from within Kent about three years ago, and that was after a couple of years of offering Birth Art Cafe to mums in our local area. Um, so today I'm here as uh, the founder and facilitator of Birthing from Within Kent. So we support mums and families on their perinatal journey, so antenatal through to postnatal, um, especially their journey in their emotional well-being and their mental health. So we have an antenatal course and we have postnatal courses and they're really about helping mums um, have space and time to be real about what's going on for them, to um, explore how they're feeling and thinking about things. Um, we do some teaching, but mainly we offer mums the space and time to discover things for themselves. So where does the particular interest in miscarriage arise? Yeah, um, well I started off by working with mums who'd had um, a unexpected or unwanted birth experience and then the community um, has grown from there and it is very much a community feel that we have here and out of listening to mums the services I offer have changed and evolved over time and then I've noticed in the last 18 months or so that the theme of miscarriage and stillbirth including ectopic pregnancies and molar pregnancies, has come up more frequently. I think as mums have got to know me and trust me, some of those um, deeper issues have come up. So really through listening to them, I realised there was, there was a need for this. For some of them, it's after what has happened, coming to terms with what's happened, uh, learning to live with the experience they have of, of living without their child present in their lives every day. And for some of them, it really comes to a head when they get pregnant again. And they're finding it hard to kind of balance both situations that they find themselves in. So with that, I've done training to help me. But the main thing about the approaches I use is that I, I hold space for people and I listen to people. Um, so it's not really about me being an expert in something. It's about me providing space for people to be real. And whether someone is coming to you fearful about something that's happened or worried about and anxious about something that could happen, what they really need in the first instance is just that person who's willing to listen and yeah. listen without fixing. So a foundation, a core foundation of everything I do with Birthing From Within Kent is that we listen without fixing and we practice that in our groups. So the mums practice holding space for each other as well. They make jokes about it, you know, even when we're not in a session, they're like, is it OK for me to suggest something because I might be fixing this? And um, <laughs> so, yeah, the, it doesn't require me to be an expert in miscarriage or stillbirth. But it is helpful, the more skilled I get in listening and holding space for people, the more people can be real and work through whatever they're experiencing. And in the case of miscarriage, what I found is that mums often, one of the initial things they're struggling with isn't just the miscarriage and the, the following on effects of that. It's the, the tension they feel in how to be real in everyday life or how to exist and live in everyday life. 
So when they when I listen to them, they're saying things like this happened. But what I'm really struggling with right now is the fact that some people know about this and some people don't. And my child isn't acknowledged and I finding it really hard to be real about who they were and that they mattered to me. Or I feel really guilty because I had a miscarriage, but I hadn't even got to the stage of wanting that child. And now I feel guilty because did something happen because I didn't really want them. And just holding that space for them to bring that into the light is one of the most powerful things you can do for women. They're almost struggling with the tension of how to be true in the situation. And that's their, often their initial struggle is um, the, the tension between living a lie and living in truth. So what you're yeah. doing is is helping them to have those feelings. Yes, and and be honest about them, feel safe to voice them, to not feel ashamed or scared or worried, um, not feel judged, um, to have them validated often, and, and just to have a space, a, a safe space, um, where those things can be spoken without the world stop spinning or yeah. come down on you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. I'm interested in what you said about um, this idea of, of living a lie. Is that something that is commonly felt by mothers who've had miscarriage? Um, I don't know. I, ca- I can't speak for whether it's common enough because I haven't, there haven't been hundreds of women I've supported in this situation. Mm-hmm. But it has come up each time with the women I have supported. Yeah. And the women who seem to be living life in the most healthy way are the women who do talk about their child and who who do in some way acknowledge them more publicly that might be to do with their personalities because of course some people might be quite fine not talking about it and and would prefer it hidden but in my experience the women I've met first presenting problem for them after the fact that they've had a miscarriage, is that they're really struggling with how to live everyday life afterwards, with the who do they talk to, who do they tell, um, who knows, who doesn't know. Um, Also scenarios like um, if they're pregnant again, people think it's their first pregnancy. And aren't you excited? It's your first pregnancy, isn't it wonderful? And of course, they're in their head, they're going, no, this isn't my first pregnancy. I had a son or daughter, or I had a child, or... Actually, this, yeah, the, there's more to this story, but you don't know it. And I don't know if I can voice that with you. Yeah. Um, and they might even feel that with their own family. Some of their family may know and some of their family may not know. Um, and that can also be a very common situation for women who miscarry in the first 12 weeks. Mm, because I was in just our, going to ask you that. Yeah. <laughs> must be even more for those people who haven't actually shared that they're pregnant. Yes, absolutely. So uh, there's a few mums I've supported and they're, you know, they, they didn't get to that point of having the scan and saying, you know, I, I am pregnant. You know, no one knows or then they do and their partner do, but no one else does. And then you have that, that tension, that uh, tug of war going on inside you of whether you whether you tell people who you would tell, who you wouldn't tell. And mums often, the ones I've met, they want their child acknowledged and celebrated because although their child didn't get to the stage of being born and breathing, 
to them, they'd already started imagining their child as part of their family. Yeah. They, they pictured them in their house and where, what school they might have gone to and who they would have played with and if they've got other children playing with their siblings. And to them, they are very real and they are their son or daughter. And, and that makes it so real for them that they, they struggle with wondering how do they acknowledge that child and celebrate that child um, when no one else knows about them. That's really moving. It is. It's like their heads on one path and their feet on another. Yes. And I think that that's a lovely analogy because that's the tension I'm seeing in women. They do feel torn, you know, as if your head was in one place and, and the rest of your body somewhere else. Because, you know, when we, when we live a lie, when we're living in a situation where we can't live in the light, live in truth, it, it creates such a, an issue for us internally. The women I've met wanted and want to celebrate those children, but they don't necessarily know how. Um, their culture um, perhaps doesn't give them um, ceremonies or rituals or, or just normal everyday things that they can do to celebrate their child. So, so one of the things I do is, is, is help them work out what those ceremonies or rituals or everyday things might be and to put those in place with those women um, not for them. I don't design them. That I help them have the space to design those things for themselves. As we're talking, as this goes out to the whole of the UK, the different cultures we have in Britain, you know, in some cultures, there would be religious ceremonies that help mark these things, or you would have religious leaders who can design things with parents to mark these situations. And you would have some cultures that don't acknowledge um, children who haven't got to the stage of the quickening and feeling the baby or haven't got to the stage of being born and um, having a, a prayer read over them or things like that. And that was a historic issue um, in Britain as well, that, you know, a, a mother and a father would, would acknowledge these children in this pregnancy, but there might not be the, the whole cultural situation that, that can do that formally. Um, in the same way as a child that is born and lives for a little while and then dies. Well, with early miscarriage, I don't know, I don't, I've, I've definitely had one and possibly had another early miscarriage, and um, the health professionals were, were very dismissive. Uh, you know, this, this happens in, I don't know, X percentage of pregnancies. It's completely normal, just go home and try again. Yeah. And that was it, and I was given a little badly foot copy leaflet. Right. And there was nothing that you could kind of hang on to to say this was a, an actually an important thing and this is a, a dramatic occurrence for me yes and you there was nowhere to take that yes I'm so sorry that happened and it, I, it, it is happening yeah, I'm fine. it is happening <laughs> yeah but but what you're describing is is what women are experiencing still and for for that woman as you say this is a very significant thing um, they they knew they were pregnant with all the feelings that may bring, the feelings of joy or the feelings of um, apprehension. And then for that suddenly to not be continuing creates a reaction, internal reaction and emotions that go with it. And to say it's just anything, you know, it's just this or just that. You need to just scrap saying just. It's not just anything. 
So as midwives and doulas and health professionals, you know, when we're listening to women, we can mirror back what they're saying to them. So if we're not sure whether to call it a loss or a death, if we're not sure whether to call it a baby or their son or daughter or a child's name, the best thing we can do is to mirror back to them what they are saying. So if a woman's calling the child by name, we mirror back the name of the child or my son or my daughter. We mirror back that language. And then it shows the woman that we're listening. It shows the woman that that child is acknowledged in the way that she is able to acknowledge them at the moment or is choosing to acknowledge them. You know, I, I had one woman say to me, at, at first it was OK that people called it infant loss, and then somewhere on her grieving journey, she just got so fed up with people calling it a loss. Said, I didn't lose my baby. I didn't misplace them somewhere. Um, they, they died. You know, can we stop calling it loss? Because I didn't lose them. They died. Why don't people use the word death? Now, I can't, I mustn't be as blunt as that with some women, because some women, they'd just run a mile. They'd be horrified that I was being so blunt and that would seem really insensitive and blah, blah, blah. But for her at that stage of her journey, she was in a stage of being angry and fed up and completely frustrated and driven crazy by this, you know, this softening of something that actually, at her stage of grieving, was not, not soft, was hard, was awful, was traumatic and she was in that phase of wanting to call it what it is and I think she was also yeah absolutely so when we're listening to women as health professionals or friends or relatives you know we can mirror back what they're saying and say you know I hear you I hear you you're fed up of calling this loss so I'm not going to call it loss anymore it seems like there's really good practice with that sort of thing around stillbirth Right, yeah. Because it's a, of, of supporting parents in that situation, but yeah. there must, there's, it's almost as though there's a, a mental cut-off point mm. at which you're not supposed to feel that. Yes, and, and, and life doesn't work like that. Because <laughs> a, a woman is classed as having a miscarriage at, at 23 weeks and six days. It's not until you're 24 weeks that you, it's classed as a stillbirth. So an example, some of the listeners will have, have heard or, or watched the storyline on Coronation Street very recently in the last month or so. And the woman lost her child or her baby died at 23 weeks. And the hospital, and it was 23 weeks and five days, and the hospital staff who were in the show, um, the characters were saying, well, we, we won't resuscitate until 24 weeks. We won't do things till 24 weeks. And that's because in our country, the NHS classes stillbirth as 24 weeks onwards and miscarriage before. So you can have late miscarriage and your baby, when they're born, looks like a baby, you know, a very small baby. But they, they have their features, they, they have limbs, all of those things. So miscarriage is a, a really big gestation range as care providers but as I said the best thing we can do is actually take the lead from the woman and if she saw this life as hugely significant at whatever stage then to mirror that back for her and acknowledge that for her and help her work through that internally I think the service you're offering should be just you know rolled out universally <laughs> that no, would be lovely very... hooray <laughs> idealistic to think that such a thing could happen but mm. I was really shocked that you know the, the, the rational 
bit of my head was um, just shocked that there was nothing. Right. There was no support, no counselling. Nobody was going to say, sit down with me and say, well, how do you feel about this? Mm. So It was just clinical. Yeah. No, and I'm so sorry that happened. Well, no, this is over it's a just like, ago. I know, but... But for you and for women listening, because there will be some of the care providers yeah. listening and women who listen to this podcast, because we share it with them too, who will have been in this situation. And I'm yeah. sorry for you guys that this has happened to, because it doesn't take very much for someone to be willing to say, I'm really sorry that happened. Do you want me to listen more? And to not say any platitudes and any, well, you can just have another one or just, just, just that we yeah. said earlier. You know, it doesn't take very much to just, to just, <laughs> to, I know, to I'm, you I'm know. Couples who have, who experience multiple miscarriages and which, yeah. at which point does it not become just a miscarriage? Yeah. Well, the NHS, you know, the NHS website explains that it's not until you've had three miscarriages that you can actually start to get NHS help to try and stop that happening and and already if you've you've had three miscarriages that's a huge amount that you're already yeah. grieving over it's wonderful that we have the nhs and it's wonderful all the things they do but in our country and actually i think in in probably the world we're not so good at supporting that internal emotional journey so if mums do go back to their doctor and say i'm really struggling with this miscarriage I've had, as far as I understand it, at whatever stage that happened, they can get counselling and support. So go and ask. If you need it, go and ask. There are other organisations. The Miscarriage Association, which is online, has a helpline, and that's Monday to Friday in the day. Um, And also Cruise Bereavement Care has a helpline that's Monday to Friday. And for those who do go on to have other children, there are organisations like PALS, Pregnancy After Loss Support. And that's very helpful because it very much acknowledges that however you're feeling about this pregnancy and what happened before, all of that is very valid. And no one can kind of suggest how you ought to be or feel about those things. That's really useful signposting as well, thank you. Do you want to give us your website address as well? On Facebook, it's My Baby. BFWK and BFWK stands for Birthing from Within Kent. So my baby, BFWK. Um, And I use uh, public Facebook pages because all the support I offer is grant subsidised. I want everything we do, we try and get local grants so that any family can afford to access this support. And if I do website hosting and all that kind of thing, that's going to take some of the money away from what I'm doing with the mums so so everything's on you know public facebook pages and things great okay that's been really nice to talk to you okay you too karen thanks for your time all right take care bye i could have talked to aileen for hours and in fact um she recorded several other additional bits and sent them to me but i for time reasons i couldn't squeeze it all in which is a bit sad (laughs) i wonder if there's any way of posting those to the website oh i might look into that yeah i think it's an interesting discussion that that we've had in the run-up to the episode today well you know where i've had a tendency to to say it's the uh the pregnancy loss episode and you've been very adamant no it isn't 
Mm, yeah, I didn't want to use that word, loss. Yeah. And um, I was more initially coming at it from the point of view of someone who has had an abortion and didn't consider that to be a loss. Right. While I'm not excluding that there are women who will feel it as a loss. Um, yeah. But all, actually listening to the discussion about miscarriage and while acknowledging that, again, that for a lot of women is a loss, mm -hmm. there there were real positive ways of of addressing that and then Aileen talked about kind of celebrating um the the pregnancy and the child mm. and bringing that child into into the family even though they're not living um, yeah. and it, I liked talking to her because she viewed miscarriage as a whole thing and it wasn't really dismissive of early miscarriage which a, a lot of people I've talked to have been yeah, no, I, 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 I get that. I have come across many women throughout my my career that that have had an experience of grief and loss in the context of very early miscarriages. So uh, it was a good message from from Aileen. It really was. But um, do you see why loss felt felt like not quite the right word? Yeah, when you spoke to me about it, I, I saw it clearly. You know, the the words we we talk about words every week and about the power of language, but but it it cannot be underestimated. The the words that we that we use frame our experiences. You know, and if we if we'd set the episode up as an episode about pregnancy loss, there's a presumption about what our content's going to be for a start. Yeah. And, uh, you know, which may have led to some people not having an opportunity to hear Aileen uh, or Abby, for that matter. And Aileen also talked about unexpected endings, which I yeah. guess with abortion, you can't call it unexpected. But there's just there's some unsomething word that feels right and I can't quite get my finger on it. No, so maybe if listeners have got some ideas about, you know, what should we call this episode? Too late because we'll already have released it, but <laughs> we still haven't figured it out. Yeah. While we're talking about language, the fact that this week um, abortion was decriminalised in the yeah. UK. How yeah. <sighs> criminal. Imagine. It well, begs belief that this should be a criminal act. We, we try to make uh, our episodes Trump free. But you don't have to look far to, to, to hear the rhetoric of retribution and punishment in the context of abortion, do you? No. Yeah, the, the treatment of women and the fact that there are people out there, including women, who believe that actual pregnant women can't make decisions about what happens to their own bodies. Yeah. Just makes me shake with anger. Yeah, me too. Uh, me too. And, and my guess is it's more prevalent than we like to imagine. You know, the model of evolution doesn't have a moral filter. You know, a fox rips apart a chicken and we don't apply a moral filter to that. You know, we see evolution outworking in its own ways. It's only human beings that have the power to, to create a moral filter and then apply it universally. You know, hence, you know, hence we have such strong opinions about breastfeeding, not breastfeeding about abortion we have strong opinions everywhere because the human animal can now apply a moral filter that they believe in absolutely what i don't understand is how this often seems to come from a religious viewpoint i, uh, I cannot cannot you can't understand that no i can't 
Well, I, I come back in way back in my history. Not many people know, but I was an evangelical Christian uh, minister in a church at the age of 24. And when I held those belief systems and those frames of reference, uh, life began at conception based on a psalm about I knew your unformed substance, I think it says in one of the psalms. Mm. So my, my position, my, my value f- f- uh, came from a belief that the Bible expressed absolute truth. And the, when the Bible said life began at conception, that was the truth. Were, were so, you also good with stoning women for adultery? Uh, uh, I, uh, I never stoned anyone, Karen. Right, but the thing is, if, if the Bible's absolute truth, then you've got to believe every single bit of... Absolutely. Well, yeah, I, you see, I, I have been on a faith journey where I no longer sit in that position. Mm. Uh, I, I wouldn't call myself an evangelical Christian. I would say I have a faith story. But, but when you're inside that paradigm that says the Bible is absolutely true, um, these kind of contradictions, you kind of hold them in tension and they're, they're uncomfortable uh, you, you don't like them, but you, you're kind of tied to that interpretive model. Do you know what I mean? So, for example, when I was an evangelical Christian, uh, I, I would have said tattooing is wrong. But I would have excluded the second half of that verse in Leviticus that said, don't trim your beard. It's in the second, it's in the second half of the verse. Right. How? How can you, so how can you have so one thing and not the other? I, I, I know. It's it's a contradiction. Yeah, I I think it needs to be said at this point. He says defensively that I I have lots of evangelical Christian friends, lots of Christian friends that wouldn't accept that interpretation as being the absolute truth, uh, and temper all that they say, you know, uh, in the context of compassion. Yeah, it would be wrong of us to to be blanketly dismissing uh, people's faith stories and religious beliefs. No, what I'm blanketly dismissing is the anti-abortion position that has no compassion for women who've been raped or women whose babies have no hope of life outside the womb um, or women who simply are not in a position to have a baby and bring up a family. No, well, I'm I'm with you. I, I'm with you on that. And I, yeah. Shall we have a listen to Abigail Fitz? given from the British Pregnancy Advisory Service because she says this much better than we do. My name is Abby Fitzgibbon. I'm Head of Advocacy and Campaigns at BPAS, the British Pregnancy Advisory Service. BPAS is a charity that's been around since 1968 which provides care for women seeking abortion, mostly on behalf of the NHS, about 90% of the, 98% of the women we see are NHS patients effectively and then the remaining 2% are women travelling from places like Ireland and Northern Ireland where you can't get access to an abortion and then alongside that we provide contraception and miscarriage management and things like vasectomy care as well. Right, thanks very much for talking to us today Abby. Um, It's an episode that's about when pregnancy ends for whatever reason and we're also speaking to Aileen White um, about miscarriage support. I'm interested that um, that's actually something that comes under your remit as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's something that an area of work that's grown for us in recent years, mainly because we became aware that the choices that women have when they miscarry in terms of ensuring the completion of that miscarriage can be quite limited when they go directly into 
NHS services. And VPAS's ethos is very much whether you are talking about decisions around choice of method in childbirth, whether you're talking about breastfeeding, whether you're talking about contraception, abortion, whatever, women really need to be at the heart of their decision-making. So if a woman chooses to try to make her, once once she's miscarrying, if she doesn't just want to kind of wait for things to proceed naturally, in inverted commas, then it's absolutely right that she should be supported to be able to um, move on as quickly as possible. And we thought that it became very clear that that was a gap and that women needed that kind of care. And it's also very clear from the kind of work that I do. So I work more at a kind of political level, campaigning around abortion, talking to journalists and explaining the experiences of the women that we see. Because although they're very, very different, there are some themes that come up a lot. And one of those themes for us, I think, is that women who experience miscarriage, there isn't a lot of discussion that goes on around the kind of care and support that they might need. And this, these obviously take place usually with very much wanted pregnancies and cause an enormous amount of distress at whatever gestation. Whereas on abortion, which is the core part of BPAS's work, there is an enormous amount of scrutiny and discussion about women ending pregnancies that are not wanted or they cannot continue, which can on occasion be extremely distressing, but simply do not require the same kind of counselling and support that women having a natural miscarriage may need. And it just seems to us completely wrong that there is so much focus for political reasons placed on abortion when miscarriages, you know, aside from the excellent work carried out by some organisations raising the profile of it, it's largely ignored that is so true. I hadn't really put that together before, but having experienced both an early miscarriage and an abortion, I and, and the miscarriage being so much more distressing than the abortion, I remember now that there was a much, much more counselling and more oversight, more appointments, more talking to people for the abortion, which I would what just kind of was much more of a, a, a let's get on with it procedure than the miscarriage, which was just said, well, this happened to every to lots of people. Just go home and try again. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just think it's completely wrong. And, you know, there's no there's no wrong way to feel about these things if you have a miscarriage and you don't have really intense, intense feelings about it. Of course, that's that, that's not wrong. And nor is it wrong to have an abortion and feel, well, well, you know, you know, actually, I find this I find this really distressing. But it, these things must be woman led. And because of a tiny minority of people in and around Parliament and around some very small pro-life or anti-abortion organisations, it completely skews the debate, which means that, sadly, that the services women get access to on the ground are fundamentally changed. It's, it's scary sometimes how much political debate does shape what happens to women when they're kind of going through their reproductive lives. It really does make a difference. I think sometimes it seems a bit alien but it really shapes policy and attitudes to women and attitudes to things like pregnancy, uh, sorry, to miscarriage and abortion, when actually perhaps we really need to be going out there on the ground and listening to what women say about it, exactly as you'd have just expressed your perspective on your experiences of pregnancy. Lots of women will talk about it like that, and those are the voices that we really need to hear. Yes, I think we spoke a few years ago, didn't we? When, and at the time you were um, working to kind of campaign to get a message across that abortion isn't just something that kind of teenagers are using as a contraceptive, but something yeah. that actually grown-ups do as well. Absolutely. And these days, I think it's 54, 53, 54% of women who have abortions are already mothers. So it's not as though the 
Daily Mail's characterization of feckless teenagers having abortions because they got drunk in a park and they misbehave. I mean, that's just, I mean, that may, be the, that may be accurate in a few cases, but the vast majority of women having abortions are just ordinary women making responsible decisions about their life, their partner's life, their family life, and they know exactly what it means to be pregnant and to bring a child in the world, into the world. There is a real misrepresentation of this issue, which I do think is changing, but I think it's changing partly because women like you, uh, you mentioned the work that we've done before, ha- are increasingly able to speak out about their experience of having an abortion and above and beyond anything else, which I think is a hugely brave thing, but it shouldn't need to be a brave thing, but it does change things. It, mm. It's much harder for people to say negative things about women having abortions if they know you know, that someone that they know and care about has had an abortion. Yeah, I think um, it's one of those things that isn't spoken about enough. I'm I'm sure it's probably not necessarily a dinner party topic, but um, that um, I was just listening on the radio to somebody who's um, on Women's Hour now, I wish I knew who it was, Um, (laughs) he and his wife have recently made um, a video about their miscarriage experience. And that's on Woman's Hour. It's being talked about. He's being described as brave for making this video. And it's it's kind of very cosy. Mm. People are really trying to talk about their experiences of pregnancy, whether it's miscarriage or abortion. And I do think that is that, that is what sometimes changes these things. But there is an entirely different attitude almost to women talking about abortion to women talking about miscarriage but the the unfortunate flip side is as I was saying earlier abortion gets much more attention because it's kind of stigmatized and dramatized in a way whereas uh, absolutely it's very brave to make a video about an experience as personal as miscarriage but it's almost that it brings up different kinds of things it's almost like you're likely to get less attention for it which is completely wrong yeah. but you're also less likely to be attacked for it as well. Yeah, I do feel a sort of slight sense of nervousness actually saying on a podcast that people are going to listen to, I had an abortion, and think, well, I'm going to offend people, I'm going to get emails. We've never had a complaint yet on this podcast, maybe this oh, will be the first. But I mean, I think one of the things that I've, so I've worked in this field for a, a while now, one of the things that I have find, found most interesting about it is how unifying experiences of pregnancy are, whether women have never been pregnant and would never want to be pregnant, or they have been pregnant, or they want to be pregnant and they can't, or, you know, all these things, they're actually really quite unifying. So when you talk to women, and so when I go out and talk about what I do, whether, you know, in the pub or whatever, people will tell you things about their experiences of pregnancy, wherever on the spectrum that they are. And though some women and people are very judgmental about it, I think they are very much in the minority, because most women have some experience of a kind trying to not be pregnant be pregnant or not or many of all the various <laughs> things associated with pregnancy most women have some experience of it mm. it's incredible how empathetic that we are to each other perhaps we shouldn't be surprised it's just you hear these negative voices much more than you hear the kind sympathetic ones don't you yes it's sad yeah and that that applies across the spectrum but women generally are judged on their sort of reproductive sort of um, achievements. <laughs> Absolutely, and you're always doing word. something wrong. Well, everybody's yeah. got four children, one, none. You've, somebody out there is going to think that you've done something wrong. Yeah. But as I say, that's quite a unifying experience for women, I think. Yes, what comes to mind is the whole Theresa May, Andrea Leadsom thing. 
Yeah. Where she oh, said she'd God. be a better prime minister because she'd had children. And that's really interesting. Yeah. And so many mothers were outraged by that. And I have to say that charms exactly with my experience of talking about these things. It's not as though women are, are you know, are put into silos, as our medical director puts it. You know, women who have abortions are women who have babies. It's not as though you have women who have abortions here, women who have miscarriages here, and then women who have continued their pregnancies and have babies over here. These are All these different experiences are wrapped up in individual women's lives. Yeah. You, you mentioned that there were other themes that come up as well when you're in your political work. So I think what we've seen over the last kind of five years or so is, is a kind of upscaling of anti-abortion activity in this country. Really? Where is that coming from? We believe it's coming from the states, and I think you can see the kind of shape of that quite easily. That curve must be going up steeply right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they will have been massively emboldened by the election of Trump, and political instability in general is not good for this, these kind of issues, I think. So there are groups like Abort 67, which people may have seen in the media, so they stand outside clinics with massive banners of dismembered fetuses. In the UK? Yeah, so they go to various places all around, all around the country. And interestingly, to go back to the point about women's experiences being quite similar and being quite unifying, so in some areas, the people that have been most distressed by those posters are local residents who are not even attending abortion clinics but have experienced stillbirth. Because to have to drive past a picture of a, effectively a dismembered baby at quite a late gestation, which has very little to do with abortion in reality, yeah. is primarily hugely distressing for those people. And that has, was, has been very noticeable for us. And then there are groups like 40 Days for Life who call their presence outside clinics prayer vigils. And actually, 40 Days for Life starts uh, on the day we're recording this, the 1st of March, and runs for the whole of Lent. And they will be outside clinics up and down the country claiming that they're just praying, but really staring at women, judging them, approaching them, just intimidating them, to be honest. And we've been running a campaign for a couple of years now to get this kind of activity stopped because the police most frequently say they can't do anything about it. The government say the police can and should do something about it. And then all the while, women are going through the most horrible experiences, which simply would not be allowed outside any other healthcare setting. No. It's almost as though pregnant women, and I think this is true in other areas as well when we talk about behaviour in pregnancy, pregnant women are kind of viewed as fair game. Mm. It's almost as though it's right and acceptable to intervene with, um, with a pregnant woman because you know, she can't think for herself. She, and obviously it's right that healthcare professionals with expertise support and help women when they're pregnant, but strangers on the street have absolutely no idea what a woman's going through if she's coming to an abortion clinic and yet they feel absolutely compelled to approach her and insert her, themselves into her life it's really appalling yes and that again across the board if, as soon as you become pregnant you lose certain brain vas uh, brain cells and become a vessel and become public property and uh, other people get the right to tell you what to do whether you can drink how close you can sit to your desk was one of the pieces of advice i used to constantly get oh my pregnant. goodness really don't sit so close to the desk you're squashing your baby really <laughs> oh my god it's unbelievable it, it is just like this kind of public property thing it's yeah. like when people walk up to pregnant women and, and put their hands on their stomach isn't yeah, which is just I'm not saying those things are necessarily as, uh, or, or and even at all malicious in the way that anti-abortion groups are, but it is all kind of part and parcel of the same 
attitude to pregnant women. I, I mean, that has, has always been the case to some degree, but it definitely feels like it's, it's worsening. And part of it is what's going on in the States. I mean, and in the States, you see moves to lock up women using drugs on the basis that they're a threat to their fetus. And although, but of course, it's absolutely right. Most women, most women want to do the right thing by their baby. But I, think that, I mean, that is an almost universal experience. And the ones who can't or are unable to need help. They don't need criminalization. They need expert, well-funded support. And, and then and that speaks more broadly to the kind of legal framework around things like abortion as well. So abortion remains in the criminal law in this country. So you can, of course, have a legal abortion if you meet the grounds of the 1967 Abortion Act. But on the statute books, going back to 1861, abortion is still a crime. Most of the general public don't know that, which I think is good and bad. It's good because abortion should not be considered a crime and it should not be even further stigmatised than it already is. But it also means that we've seen some young women in England and Wales buying pills online, not knowing that they're committing a really quite a major criminal offence. And then in Northern Ireland, where you can't access an abortion at all, really, there are women being prosecuted for doing that. And this all feeds into the narrative that, you know, abortion is wrong and pregnant women must be stopped from doing things and they can't make good decisions for themselves. So although sometimes these things don't necessarily seem like they might matter immediately, I think they do all kind of feed into a almost like a kind of culture of suspicion around pregnancy. Yes, very much so. You also mentioned when we were chatting earlier before we started recording about um, you working with midwives? Yes, so BFAS increasingly employs lots and lots of midwives, which is wonderful for us because they have such impressive expertise in this area. Um, But also I think it's really interesting for people outside the organisation. I mean, I'm sure lots of your listeners will be aware of this already, but the Royal College of Midwives has been very clear that they view that caring for women having abortions and being with women is absolutely part of the work of midwives and that there's nothing unusual about that and this kind of daily mail idea that being a midwife is just about bringing babies into the world which is obviously a wonderful thing but it's not about caring for women it's actually wrong and that the role of midwives is very much to be there for their their patients as well as looking after their babies if that's what the care that they need. Uh, so the chair of the BPAS Board of Trustees is Cathy Warwick, who is the chief executive of the Royal College of Midwives because she precisely feels that, because she feels that these two things go hand in hand. And it has been wonderful to see so many midwives come to BPAS. Right, brilliant. Thank you. Is there anything else that you um, are currently engaged in that you'd like to mention just before we finish? It's the 50th anniversary of the Abortion Act this year, which is a useful moment for us to kind of take stock. And there's a piece of work that we're doing called Share Your Story, which is um, based around the idea that abortion has meant a lot to women's lives in this country. And I don't mean as an individual, I don't mean just around individual abortion experiences, although they're really important here as well, but it's enabled women to kind of shape their families and shape their lives and make decisions that they wouldn't, we would not have been able to do 50 years ago. So we're collecting those kind of stories. I mean, and to us, we're, I mean, as you know, really, really keen to hear from women directly about their experiences of abortion and indeed pregnancy in general. And it would be wonderful if women 
listening to this podcast felt able to do that. You know, this is the sad thing about this area is that you so rarely hear from the women who are most affected, and to my mind, that is just wrong. And if the, we're, we're determined to do whatever we can to rectify that, and I think the anniversary of the act is a good opportunity. So if I'm able to get the email address to you, would it be possible? Yeah, to... definitely. Please. Oh, do that. thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Abby. It's been really interesting to speak to you, and we'll yeah give out some of those details if you can get that to me. We'll give that out on the show. Wonderful. Thank you so much. So it was really interesting to talk to Abby and um, I actually found huge similarities between what she said and what Aileen was talking about earlier. Um, Fascinating stuff. I know that this is an emotive and sometimes quite controversial topic and we're very happy to listen to people who want to give us a bit of feedback. Yeah, definitely. In fact, we wouldn't mind people sending us the odd MP3, would we? Well, actually, we've got a, a plan for our next episode which is going to be about birth in fiction we'd really like you to get involved so if you've got a favorite passage about birth and you want to contribute either you know read the passage or tell us your thoughts about it and what book it's out of or a poem um why not record yourself like on your phone or something and send us an mp3 no more than two minutes long and i will i'd like to collate a few of them together to put into the show so you reading or talking about whatever it is that you've come across about birth in fiction and if you get in touch via the facebook page i'll give you an email address you can send it to brilliant that's a great idea you've been reading something that you wanted to share mark well i'm a big fan of an author called david dada that's d-e-i-d-a uh, he's written loads of books, many of which I've read and been influenced by. I'm reading this one at the moment, uh, part of my preparation for writing the second book that's coming out March next year. This this book's called It's a Guy Thing, An Owner's Manual for Women by David Dada. It's kind of, um, he poses various questions and answers them from uh, his point of view as a man. Uh, why are men often hostile towards professional women? Does working with women ruin my man? (laughs) Some of the titles are so offensive, but the content is very good. Do I really want a masculine man? I know it sounds a bit politically incorrect. It sounds bonkers. Yeah, but the content is is dynamite. I'm putting him on the webpage right now, on, on Facebook right now. Do it. It'll blow people's minds because he's he, he's not coming at this from the position you would normally expect. There's quite a spiritual element to it, and he offends uh, quite a few folk. But the content's dynamite. Okay. Well, I've put him up there on Facebook, and well, let's see what people say. All right, what are you reading? I'm still flicking through the positive birth book. I've got a book about called Maternal Instincts by Sarah Bluffer Hardy, which I think you would really like. Um, and I'm reading fiction, The Glorious Heresies by Lisa McInerney, and that's really good. Well, that's been a great episode, Karen. Thank you for that today, Mark. That was really fun. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code SPROGCAST for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.